Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with great earnestness and a desire to hear from you today. We want your word to speak very clearly and powerfully into the, the depths of our hearts, Father, in such a way that it causes us to love you and embrace you in ways that we've never experienced before in our lives. And so I'm pleading with you today, Father, I'm asking that you would put aside me and any other potential distractions and that you would come here today and you would unfold your word in such a powerful way, Father. I believe that you can do it. I trust that you will. And I'm asking in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week we began a series uh, on a passage of scripture that's called the Christ Hymn. And this hymn is a part of the beginning of the book of Colossians. And uh, last week we saw that what it does is it holds out and presents really the greatest reality in all of existence, the person and work of Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is called the Christ hymn because its structure and the orientation of its words has led some theologians to, to basically think it was an ancient liturgy or uh, possibly a song that they sang before worship. And so last week we did something a little weird and a little different. Uh, and I'd like to do it again this week. We all read the passage together from the screen. And if you guys are up for it, let's do that again, just to get into the um, feeling or at least the skin of the people who used to do this hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So I'll start and then we'll go through together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. So as we read that together, and as, you, as we unpack it and, and look at this, I really would like us to recognize that liturgy and scripture, especially the collective reading of it, is designed to be worship. And that's what this entire series is about. We are worshipers. We're trying to answer the question with our hearts, who was Jesus Christ? Who is he really? And so last week we focused on two aspects of who Christ Jesus was. We focused on um, the unequivocal reality that Jesus Christ is God, that he is God. Colossians 1.19 and 2.9 say that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. All of God was in Jesus. So Jesus is God the Son. But secondly, because he is God, he bears the marks of divinity, and one of those is that he is eternal. Christ Jesus is eternal. He never had a beginning. He has always, as God the Son, been. 
And now, uh, in, in Colossians 1.17, says this explicitly. He is before all things. There isn't anything before him. And now, as we move deeper, we're going to get to a juggernaut of a verse. Colossians um, 1.16 says this. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So let's uh, start with this passage on the surface. There is a simplicity to this passage, but there's a lot of depth that we can easily miss if we're just gliding on the top. On the surface, this verse is really clear. It says that all things, every single thing that exists, was created by Christ Jesus. God the Son is the source of all things. And it says, for by him all things were created. And then to clarify, all things were created through him and for him. So the Apostle Paul is hungry and passionate that we get this. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the source of all things. Nothing, absolutely nothing exists that did not come into being by his decision, by his design, and by his hand. John 1 puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word, the Son, Christ Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So John again wants to hammer this home. He says it twice. All things were made through him. And so that we're not confused, just in case you were thinking there's something outside of the realm of that all things. He says, without him, without Christ, was not anything made that was made. So everything that we have in the universe, um, everything, whether you're thinking of galaxies or whether you're thinking of gadflies, whether you're thinking of centipedes on the ground or whether you're thinking of supernovas in the deepest reaches of the universe, all of these things were made through Christ Jesus. Whether you're considering of the greatest things that you can imagine, like the universe itself with its seemingly endless expanse and its imponderably innumerable uh, amount of galaxies and stars, all of those, every single drop of them were, was made by Christ Jesus. And if you get down to the deepest, smallest, minutest parts of reality, the subatomic particles that no one has ever seen nor will see on this side of the new heavens and the new earth, he made those too. He has made everything. There's nothing that we've laid eyes on in the universe that he hasn't made. And it exists because of him, which means that everything belongs to Christ Jesus. He has rights and ownership from this initial act of creation, and those rights extend to every single molecule in the universe. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why Paul, at the end of 
the Colossians 1.16 passage can say, all things were created for him, not just by him, not just through him, for him. And some of us might say, well, that's a big jump. That is a big jump. Um, does his creator status automatically entitle him to owning all things, to ruling all things, to governing all things? And Job in the Old Testament actually knows the answer to that question. Because if you recall his story, Job is um, brutally tested in the fires of tribulation. God allows it to happen. Satan orchestrates it to happen. And Job is, who was before blameless and righteous before God, finds himself, as you go through those chapters, on the verge of giving up on God. He, of course, doesn't. But one of the reasons he doesn't give up on God is because God actually shows up and starts talking to him about the situation. Just as Job's hope is about to be impaled on the shoals of his tragic situation, God comes there and Job's about to give God a piece of his mind. And we get this passage from Job 38. Listen to this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man and I will question you and make, no, make it known to me where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? This is heavy. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Have you ever told your kids that? <laughs> God's not playing games here. He is not fooling around. Um, and his argument when addressing Job, who's been through a situation that none of us can even imagine, is why he has rights to painfully test Job. And that is because he created Job. He created everything. Where were you, Job, God says, when I laid the foundation of the earth? I don't remember seeing you around there. His point is, I made all things and therefore I can do as I please with all things. If my wisdom created all things for a specific purpose, then my wisdom is the ultimate authority for the realization of that purpose that I gave it. God's wisdom in creation effectively revokes any authority we might level against his decisions. That's what's being expressed here. I was explaining to my son <coughs> a few weeks ago the painful uh, experience of realizing that your parents were right about something. And uh, I remember growing up as a young teen, and um, I remember hating it, like absolutely hating when my parents used a specific phrase. Some of you guys may know this phrase. Because I told you so. Because I told you so. I hated it because, uh, I mean, first off, it's unfair. It's uninformed. That doesn't help me uh, figure out why you have an issue with whatever I'm asking for. And I literally pledged to my parents. I, would, I pledged to them. I pledged to myself. I was like, 
I will never, ever, ever, ever say that to my kids. And then I said it to them. Um, and then I said it to them again and again. And I, I recognized in the middle of that, I was saying it to them because I um, used to trying to get around having an argument about a decision I'd already made. I made the decision, let's just let it stand. Um, but I see it differently now. I recognize why my parents say it, no matter if it's a good thing to say or not. <clears throat> and it's because of this. At the bottom line of that statement is trust. It's what you believe about your parents. And so I want my kids to trust me that when I make a decision on their behalf, even if it's painful for them in the short term, I want them to know that my nose to them about things that they want to do isn't me trying to steal joy from them. I'm actually trying to protect joy forever for them. And I want them to hear my words and them to say, that's true, because my dad knows best. That's 100% true. And I say this about my kids, but if I were to ask you the question, why is it so hard for us to believe the same things about God? He made us. He designed us in ways that I had never designed my son he knows every aspect and dimension of our personality, our characteristics, everything about us that we even don't know. Yet, has a day passed for me where I haven't thought at least once that I know better than him, if not constantly. We are living in a world that he is creator. And I think a lot of times we default to a, a kind of posture that removes him from that in our hearts. Now, God's creation of the universe definitely dis displays his unparalleled wisdom. If God created something, he has immediate, immediate and without question mastery over that something in every conceivable way. So Paul, for example, in Romans 9 says this. When dealing with the same kind of objection, he says this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? And Paul's answer to that question is yes, it's a rhetorical question. The, Paul, the, the potter has absolute rights over the clay because it's his clay and it's his pot. And Christ Jesus, what this passage in Colossians is telling us, is that God the Son has absolute rights over the entirety of the cosmos because it's his cosmos. He is the author of it all. He brought it to, into existence and he can define it as he sees fit. And this should bring us great joy because Christ Jesus is an awesome God. His wisdom is measureless. It is infinitely greater than ours. Listen to what Paul has to say about the wisdom of God in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. This is in the middle of a letter to the, to the church in Rome. He's writing a letter to help them be 
better Christians, to know Christ better. And he just can't help himself when he starts to contemplate about this God. He just starts worshiping spontaneously. Realizes he's spending ink on this, but it's important that they see this. It's important that we see this. Our first takeaway from Colossians 1.17 should be that Jesus made everything and that he defines everything. His wisdom created it and his wisdom gives it meaning and purpose. But before we get too carried away, I want to highlight something at the end of the passage that we just read from the book of Job. <laughs> um, something peculiar that actually has a fascinating con connection to the Christ hymn in Colossians. Look at Job 38, 7. It says, Who laid its, that is the earth's, cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. When the morning stars sang and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who is he talking about here? He, of course, is talking about angelic beings. More, more specifically, supernatural beings that must have been around when he was creating the world. God says that they were singing when he laid the foundation of the world down. And not just singing, they were shouting for joy which should tell us, if anything, that the creation of the cosmos was a emphatically joyful event. These beings were so taken by the splendor and majesty, the creative ability of this God, that they just couldn't help themselves like Paul. They started singing. They started worshiping. But what does this have to do with Paul's letter? What does this have to do with Colossians 1.17? Let's read it again. For by him, by God the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So by saying heaven and earth, Paul is expressing here a totality, which we've been talking about. There isn't anything but heaven and earth in reality. And therefore, Everything in those spheres, whether it dwells in heaven or whether it dwells on earth, is Christ Jesus. It belongs to God the Son, whether visible or invisible. But this is where I'm going to admit it gets a little strange and a little bit weird. So hang on. <clears throat> Paul says the Son created these things. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And when you read this, the first question you should probably ask is, what in the world is he talking about here? And why does he bring them up here? Well, from this passage, we can tell a few things right off the bat, just by the language he's using. We know that whatever he's talking about here must be extremely powerful, extraordinarily powerful. And I say that because he gives them these names, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, Giving them those names defines them by what they are most clearly existing as. It, it provides a definition that clearly conveys who they are. And these words communicate a kind of governance. They communicate a kind of power that is reserved for them. In Ephesians 6, Paul helps us flesh out this verse a little bit, these names. Most of you probably know this verse. For we do not wrestle against what? flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic 
powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says that these things, these rulers and authorities, belong to a category of reality that can also be described as cosmic powers over this present darkness, of spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So according to this text, these rulers and authorities are real, powerful, supernatural beings. They are cosmic powers, and they reign over things. They reign over this present darkness. And most theologians believe that they are in the same category of creation as the sons of God and this morning stars who were shouting and singing. They are angelic creatures designed, like everything else in creation, to glorify God. And yet, it's clear from this Ephesians passage that not all of them do. Some of these creatures, rulers and authorities, are actually in open defiance of God. And in Colossians 2, these beings, these rogue angels, are referred to as elemental spirits or elementary principles of the world, which is a very strange way to talk about them. But if I'm honest with you, nothing about this isn't strange. Um, it's strange mainly because the Bible um, does not say, have a lot to say about them. The Bible actually, the authors of Scripture seem inclined to tell us only what we absolutely need to know, and so that's what we're going to be sticking to today. One thing in Scripture that is clear on these elemental spirits, these elementary principles, is that these rulers and authorities have enslaved humanity. In fact, Scripture says that we are born into slavery with these beings, and it's, they're somehow connected to this slavery. Listen to Galatians 4. So Paul is frustrated with the Galatians because they have abandoned the gospel. And he wants them to recognize the state that they had prior to knowing God. He wants them to see, this is what you were before you knew God. So let's look at Galatians 4, 8 through 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by him, by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to, once more, uh, want to be once more? <clears throat> so Paul's saying, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved. You were slaves to these elementary principles, these elemental spirits, these rulers and authorities. Why do you want to go back to the same slavery? Why do you want to go back to that? And at this point, we would ask, well, what's the nature of the slavery? This is a very strange, like, what? I don't feel enslaved. I didn't feel enslaved when I was not a believer. What is the nature of this slavery? How have these things enslaved humanity? Well, Paul says it in the next sentence. He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. He's saying you observe days, you observe months, you observe years. What's wrong with that? Um, I, I'll be honest with you, I observe days, months, and years as well. It's called scheduling, Paul. Um, what's the problem here? Why does Paul have a hang-up on calendars? 
and and the question is, does he? Is is that the issue? Is it similar to logistical thing? It's not. It's the issue of why the Galatians were observing these things. They were observing days, months, and years because they believed they could get right with God if they did it. They believed that if they followed specific rules, circumcision was another one of them, if they kept a specific calendar, if they followed specific Sabbaths, God would call them righteous. Which is effectively like saying the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't enough. There are these other rules on the side that I kind of need in order to be commended to God. The work of Christ Jesus isn't sufficient. Paul's saying that's called slavery. That's slavery. Rule following to be commended to God as righteousness is slavery. It's slavery to these elementary principles, these rulers and authorities. And Paul is pleading with the Galatians, pleading with them, desperate for them not to go back into slavery. He's saying to them (laughs) specifically, don't do it. Don't leave the gospel. The gospel is enough. And tragically, Galatian church wasn't the only church that had this issue. The Colossian church was no different. That's the heresy we've been talking about for the last few months, which is why Paul is mentioning them in our text today. He's dealing with almost the exact same thing with the Galatian church that he is in the Colossian church. Or the Colossian church. Listen to uh, his plea in Colossians 2. If with Christ, you Colossian believers died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says that these rules, they have the appearance of wisdom. In fact, the rules he's saying there really could be expanded across all human religions. Every single one. Every human philosophy, every human belief system outside of the gospel. There is an element of wisdom there, but they can't stop you from sinning. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, asceticism. This is external moralism. It is self-focused, rule-following, and Paul's statement to them is very loudly, it cannot save you. Now, earlier in the same section of, of Colossians, Paul says something similar about the Sabbaths or keeping holy days. And his point in saying those, he mentions it explicitly, these rules that were given to us in the law of Moses are a shadow of something to come. They're not the substance. It can't make you holy. It can't stop you from sinning. Or as Paul would say, it has no value in stopping you with the indulgence of the flesh. So this is really what we're looking at, the center of what the letter um, to the Colossians is about. This is his focus. And it's fascinating if you think about this. This is just a sidebar. Um, The New Testament, most of the New Testament was written in an effort to combat false, hostile teaching against the gospel. It was written in conflict. Have you ever thought about that for a second? That God could have prevented a lot of these early heresies right out of the gates if he wanted to. But he didn't. And why didn't he do that? Well, because he wanted the New Testament to be written 
for us. Um, and the epistles, especially Paul's, engage these issues head on, defending the gospel in its infancy. So what's the purpose of the Colossian letter? Let's try to sum that letter up. Colossians 2.8 sums it up very clearly. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So the heresy spelled out really clearly here is a preoccupation with methods and rules and procedures that the Colossians believed could make them holy. They would say Jesus and the gospel, great primers. That's a good how to start this thing. That's how you want to start it. But you know what? Uh, it, you can't, they can't close the deal at the end. You need to follow this calendar. You need to do these rituals. You need to eat these foods or not eat these foods to be more holy. That was the philosophy these Christians were adopting. And Paul's saying, no. And he's being very explicit about this. He's saying there are cosmic forces in the universe to keep you enslaved right now. They are empowered by human devised means of self-realization and righteousness. Pick your religion, any of them. And even Judaism, a kind of Judaism that would say, I can earn my way to God by doing these things. All of these are false ways to pursue the living God. None of them have any value, and none of them will help you become holy. In fact, the very rules that you're creating, you can't even keep, which is exactly why Paul refers to this as being a matter of slavery. You can't do this. You can't even keep your own rules. And therefore, at this point in the letter, the rulers and the authorities are in open condemnation over humanity. Satan is referred to in Revelation 12 as the accuser of the brethren. And the reason why is that his primary form of authority is being able to point out what we are guilty of, what we image bearers are guilty of. And these rule, rulers and authorities are no different. So here's the question. Here's the big question for today. How in the world are these things for Christ? That's what Colossians 1.17 says, right? 1.16 says, how are these for Christ? For by him... By Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul is saying here that somehow these four categories of supernatural beings are for Christ. These rulers and authorities are for him. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that maybe they were originally created for God, and then they rebelled against him, and now they do whatever they want to do. Is that what Paul's saying here? It's clearly not what he's saying. This passage isn't about what Christ has lost control of. This passage is about what Christ has complete and total control of. So what is going on here? Um, although they are powerful enemies against God and against us, they still exist for the glory of Christ. Their purpose will ultimately serve Christ, period. They have no say in the matter at all because all things exist for him. Now, how, did that, how does that happen? Colossians 2 tells us. It says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, this record of debt, 
he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. They are disarmed. Now, how did he do this? It says here, our record of debt has been canceled. Our trespasses have been forgiven. Our sins were nailed to the cross of Christ. And in doing that, Jesus Christ, God through Christ, has humiliated and triumphed over those who would enslave us. He has put them to open shame. This is a stark description. The language used here in Greek is very similar to what a general would use in the ancient Greek army when he would strip the rank off of a military, a enemy military commander. They are made effete. They are made, they are not, they're not standing at any level of, of authority that they had before. They are put to open shame. Every single threat against the Christian in this passage is made hollow by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the one thing I want to point out here that's critical, that's easy to miss, is that the cross wasn't an afterthought. That what happened here to the elementary principles, the rulers and authority, was not plan B. All of this happened as plan A in God's plan. The gospel wasn't something that God came up with when sin entered the world. He's like, mm, all right, didn't expect that happening. Now I'm going to have to introduce the gospel. That's not how it happened. This was always the plan. God's victory and his display of mercy and grace in the cross was always the plan. His design was to display his unparalleled wisdom to all creation. Look at this passage in Ephesians 3, which says it, very clearly. Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, here he explains why, through the church, through the redeemed people of God, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was, the, this was according to the eternal purpose that has, he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see it there? The rulers and authorities needed to be made acquainted with something, namely the manifold wisdom of Almighty God. They didn't think God was this smart. They didn't think God was this wise. They didn't think he was this clever. The gospel was not on their radar. And God used the very slavery that had the human race had been under as the means by which he would display his greatest love. They couldn't even conceive of it until it was too late. So by then the cross had already won God's people back for him. We are no longer slaves but we are sons and daughters and we are free. And free sons, free daughters act like their father, not because they have a checklist they're trying to tick off, 
Not because they have a list of regulations, but because they got his DNA inside of him, inside of them. You're a child of God if you have faith in Christ Jesus. And what that means is that the Father's Spirit dwells in you. And it's not about external moralism. It's about your affections and desires, you being inclined from the inside out to become what you behold. And to be honest, if you're a Christian, you are transfixed on nothing more, nothing different than Jesus Christ himself. This is Christ we worship, the one who made all things. So in communion, we are called to remember Christ. Jesus told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. That is the act of communion. And he wants us, he desires for us as a church to remember the cross. And so I want us, as we take communion today, to reflect on that. Reflect on what actually we talked about. Reflect on the fact that in Acts 3.15, it says that we killed those who crucified Christ, the author of life. We killed the author of life. The source of all things died. Think about that for a moment. Christ made the people who had committed him to flogging and who were holding the cat of nine tails as it beat against his back until he didn't have a back left. He made the people who convicted him. He made the people who spit on him. He made the people who punched him. He made the people who fashioned iron spikes. He made the tree that would be cut into a cross. He made all of that, created it all, and yet willingly he laid down his life. Why did he do it? For the glory of his Father? Absolutely. Absolutely for the glory of his Father. For the humiliation of rogue angels who despise him? Yes, he did it for that as well. But in all of that, his body was marred and broken and his blood was shed so that you and I would be free. We would no longer be slaves. That we would be free. And I'm praying, I'll be praying in a moment here, but if you're a believer, you're invited to participate in communion. And I want you to reflect on a passage in Romans 8 as you take the elements. This is not Communion is not a trivial thing. It is not a trivial thing at all to remember about the center of human history. The most important thing that has ever happened. That's not trivial at all. We are remembering that the author of life was killed. That he was killed so that we might be made free. The greatest cost imaginable was paid so that we could experience the greatest freedom imaginable and possible. So listen to this passage from Romans 8, and please reflect on it as we take communion. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own 
son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We couldn't do that. We couldn't do it. But God has done it through Jesus Christ. Praise be to his name. Let's pray. Father God, there's so many different things we looked at today that we could focus on and be drawn immediately into worship. And my hope and prayer is that somehow, despite all the distractions that surround us, despite all of the different things that that cause us to take our eyes and move them off of you, that you would guide us back into that during worship, during communion, and Father, that you would you would use this passage, the, the, the created um, reality being underneath the sovereign governance of Christ Jesus, that you would use that aspect of human existence to impress upon us the worthiness and glory of Christ Jesus. That we would be so caught up in the worth and beauty of Christ that it is unsearchable, his riches, it will take us eternity to imagine and contemplate his greatness and his beauty. And I pray, Father, that that would become real for our hearts. I think it can be theory really easy. It can float out here in theory and in this is what I believe, but we need it down here. We need to know you in such a way that we show you. And so, Father, I'm praying right now that by your grace you would do that during worship during communion as we contemplate how Christ Jesus created all things and all things are for his glory and he used all things to bring about our redemption. Um, Father God, please help us see that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.